Good morning and welcome to this edition of Sundays in July. This seminar, uh, many are called, few are chosen. We could change it to few are called, many are chosen. Uh, This is a seminar about the call to ministry. And I intend it to be helpful uh, for all souls present, uh, whether you are considering the call to pastoral ministry or whether you attend Grace Community Church and are constantly surrounded by seminarians or whether you're someone who influences someone who's thinking about the call to ministry. I have in mind a mother who, who's you know, concerned for her son and uh, wants to help him clarify uh, that call to preaching. Um, I, I want to talk to us generally so that I think our church, which is really an epicenter of preaching, uh, will have a better understanding of what it means when someone says that they want to be a preacher and how you can either help yourself kind of sort through that or how you could uh, come alongside someone else and, and help them. And I realize that talking to people at Grace Community Church about preaching is like talking to people in Naples, Italy about pizza dough. It's something that you know very well. It's something you understand. It's something you're inundated with. So I don't want to give a lecture to the citizens of Detroit on how cars are made. Uh, so I really want, want to, when I thought about this, I gave a similar talk at Shepherd's Conference to preachers. And, you know, all men, all preachers, or, or lay leaders in their church at least, and I wanted to help them, a lot of them young men, ascertain their call to ministry. And if that's you, and I know there's some of you here thinking that way, uh, this is a good talk for you as well, and you, you are certainly the object of, of my interest. My, my name is Austin Duncan. I'm the college pastor at our church, but I moonlight as a seminary professor uh, at the seminary during the week, and I work in the pastoral ministries department, And because I work with college students and because I work with seminarians, I get to spend a lot of time uh, working with guys who are are weighing through this idea of the call to ministry. And ministry is so important, and it isn't something reserved for the few. It isn't something only for men. It isn't something only for uh, the unusually gifted. Ministry, largely speaking, is for every single one of us. And it's really a hallmark of what Grace Community Church is all about. So I think that's where I'd like to start, is talking about ministry uh, in general being the work of all of us, and then we'll hone in on this idea of the call to preach, so that those of you who are considering pastoral ministry, uh, eldership, uh, ramping up your involvement in ministry, teaching Bible studies, whatever it is, that you'd be able to, to hone in on that and think about it in a in a more biblical, tangible way. That, that's the, the goal for today, if, if that helps you. So let me pray, and then let me talk a little bit about ministry and Grace Community Church. Father, thank you for these, these folks here today, and I pray that this talk would be helpful. Uh, as we look at your word, we know your spirit teaches us, and when we think about our lives and the way that you've gifted this church with, with leaders and preachers and teachers and how You've given ministry to the saints to uh, work among us and to help each other and encourage each other and come alongside each other. Uh, we're, we're 
well aware of how blessed we are. So, Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for the many uh, people here who minister to each other with joy and freedom and really seek to bring honor and praise to you. God, thank you that you're the one who equips your church. You're the one who provides her with leaders and preachers. And we're grateful even for the preaching that we received this morning. And we ask that you'd continue to work that down into our hearts as we we rejoice in the miracle that is the new birth. So Father, use this, this time to open eyes and enhance our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start with the call to ministry, just generally speaking, because I think this is so important uh, that we define some terms here. The word ministry, we usually use it to speak of vocational ministry, ministry as a job, someone who stops being a landscape architect and becomes a preacher. We'd say they, they had the call to ministry. They, they want to do ministry. That, that is not the way the Bible uses the word ministry. And so I, so I think this is a really important starting point. It's an important starting point to recognize that ministry is simply a word in the Bible that means service. And the service that Christians render to one another and ultimately to God, their master, is adequately called ministry or service. And the way the Bible talks about ministry is something that is not reserved to a few, to kind of a a clergy or a class of preachers or priests or something like that. Instead, the Bible talks about ministry as the object of attention for all of God's people. To to start out, let's look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And this helps us, also helps us set up for thinking about the call to ministry as well. Ephesians 4 verse 10, he who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens. He's making a theological point about Christ. And as he talks about Christ, he says in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Keep reading verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, I read you a a sizable chunk of Ephesians 4. What would you say is the goals that are expressed in the passage I just read? What, What word was repeated? What concept sticks out to you? What's the goal of if Jesus is giving the church these different 
functions like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What, what's, what's, what, what's the point of it all? According to the whole passage that I read you, this is a, a class, so we're, we're allowed to talk. It's not preaching. Yeah. Good. So in, in, in the mind of the apostle, he says, your answer was to equip the whole body for the work of ministry. And that's a good observation. That's exactly why he says that the point of those offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is to equip the saints. In other words, to give the, the people of God, the saints, the church, the equipment, the tools, the help, the resources that they need, and then what our brother just said, for the work of the ministry. What else is in mind here? So if it's the equipping of the people, what else is the goal? Kind of from the, the tone of the whole passage, what else seems to be an emphasis? What are you thinking? Hey, John, how are you? Good to see you. Building up. Okay, good. And I think there's multiple concepts happening in, in this passage, right? So you see building up. Where do you see that, John, in this passage? 14, verse 14 and good. And starting in verse 12, for the building up. And then I would point you towards verse 13 as well that says the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God for the point of maturity, right? So maturity's in light there. And then also verse 13, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he talks about not being children tossed around by, by bad doctrine, verse 14. But instead of that, we're supposed to be stable, right? If you're not tossed around, you'd be stable, you'd be mature. And then in verse 15, we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together. And then a final word of maturity, verse 16, makes the body grow when it builds itself up in love. And so what you should have in your mind, if we're thinking about the structure of the church, is very clearly at the head of the church, is not a senior pastor, it is not a group of elders, it is not uh, even you know, the founding members of the church. At the very head of the church is Christ, right? Christ is the head. Christ is the source. Christ is the one who gives leadership and offices to the church, and he remains at the place of priority, at the forefront, at the head. So you have Christ uh, as all. And then the, even the goal of the church is, verse 13, the end, the fullness of Christ. And so we're all aiming at uh, conformity to the image of Christ, likeness to Christ. But Christ, in his glorious mercy, points out and, and provides for us leaders. He lists a few of them as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, talking about the foundation of, of the church and what it's made of. And their purpose is to not do everything themselves, but to enlist, employ, and equip the people of God to do the work of ministry. Again, ministry means service. And the work of ministry is not reserved for those appointed to a particular office. The work of ministry is something that those particular uh, appointed to an office are equipping the saints to do so that the body of Christ would be mature and built up and strengthened and strong. So does that, does that help us kind of establish 
how this thing is directed. It's very different than when you think about uh, sort of a, a deep distinction between clergy and laity, something you'd see maybe in the Roman Catholic uh, cult. You, you'd find you know, priests as this this other kind of set-apart leadership that, that don't even you know, live in the same kind of world as the people of the church. Instead, they are, they are strange and unique creatures. They're devoid of marriage, and they're devoid of uh, societal connections, and, and they are the ones who uh, have this, this role that's so different than the people in the church. And that's one of the reasons uh, for the spark of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, isn't it? It was that, that dark distinction between the, the clergy who were really keeping people from a knowledge of God instead of doing what Ephesians 4 is saying, equipping them for a knowledge of God, for stability, for the work of the ministry. And so the reason I set it up this way is because that's what our church has been about for a really long time. Just this week, someone sent me a YouTube clip, YouTube, of the 35th anniversary uh, celebration at Grace Church. It was in 1991. It was the 35th anniversary of the church. And I think it was a, a VHS tape that Sharon Duvall gave to somebody, and, and they had it turned into a YouTube video. So you can watch it if you look it up. And I don't know what the... I, was, I didn't live here in 1991. I was in eighth grade. And I, I just... I, I don't remember the fashion being quite the way it was in that VHS tape. But Grace Church has always been a kind of a place unto itself. So anyway, I highly recommend it. If for no other reason, there's an elder named Dave Amandus. He, he's, he's featured in it. A uh, wonderful man, a dear man, leads our fundamentals of the faith ministry. He used to look like a surfer, and I had no idea. I mean, a full head of blonde hair. So worth watching just for that. I'm, I'm losing my way. The YouTube video. Why, why does it matter? It matters because the whole point of Dr. MacArthur's message in that 35th anniversary celebration was he preached this text and other texts like this. He said the reason for the success, the growth, the flourishing of Grace Church is because not of his preaching, not of the leaders and their impressiveness, but because of the work of the people in developing ministries, acts of service to take care of one another. And the video features all kinds of ministries, just like you could find today at the church, different ministries for serving disabled people, ministry to children, ministry to students, uh, different ways our church serves the different people in our church. And the people who do that are the church people, not mainly or especially uh, the domain of the work of, of a pastor. Pastors aim when it comes to ministry is to equip the people to do the ministry, to meet the needs, to serve one another in love. That doesn't mean pastors don't do ministry, aren't involved in ministry, aren't involved in service, but their particular aim needs to be that towards equipping. So I do that kind of long intro just to start us all thinking because we're on a Sunday morning at Grace Church. We're not at the Shepherds Conference. We're, we're here with our church family. We just went and listened to, to the preacher. We, we sang hymns together. And 
when we think, like, what do I do to serve the Lord? The answer is, there's so many things and so many ways that you can serve the Lord in this church. Whoever you are, there's ways for you to use your particular gifts, your particular availabilities, your resources, your heart. All of these things can be employed and ought to be employed for the work of the ministry. And the the aim of that, in other words, the aim of that is to bring uh, s- s- maturity, to bring solidarity, to bring along a kind of stability that comes as a result of people using their spiritual gifts. So that's the, that's the prequel to talking about being a preacher, I guess. And the reason I say it is because I still think that there is in people's minds that the only way you can really serve the Lord is by preaching, you know, being an expositor. You know, it's, it's, we, we, we love our pastor and his ministry in and of and through the Word of God for all these decades has made such an impact on our hearts. It made some of us move 800 miles to come to seminary from a golden land of opportunity called New Mexico. So, I mean, there, we've all been affected by that ministry of the Word in profound ways. But I don't want you to have in your head as we're about to talk about, well, should I be a pastor? How does a person know if they're supposed to be a pastor? How, what does it mean to be called to be a pastor? I don't want you to think that that's some kind of higher plane of existence, that it's some sort of exclusive route to truly serving Christ. Because in your vocation, in your dentistry, in your tugboat captaining, in your serious work in the balsa wood industry, Whatever it is that you do, you can be an active and engaged member of the body of Christ using your gifts for ministry, for service to the good and growth and stability of God's people. Does that help? So everybody is in the ministry. If you're in the church, you're in the ministry. Okay, I belabored that. Woo! But I hope it was helpful. And plus, I gave you a cool, interesting, high-fashion 1991 YouTube video to watch. So what do I want to do now? Now I want to do my assignment, which is to talk about being called to preach, discerning the desire for pastoral ministry. And again, I know there's people here who who I'm confident shouldn't be pastors. My wife, for example, shouldn't be a pastor. Uh, She doesn't want to be. Uh, But I think and know that she has influence on uh, children and young people and others in our ministry who, you know, she'll be able to, to gain from a talk like this how to help others discern that, how to help others navigate that. Because it's not something that happens in isolation. It's something that happens in the context of what we just described, people doing ministry, Okay. So that, that's why this isn't like there's not like a men-only sign on the door. Uh, that's, that's just the clarification to give you well, how do you discern the desire for pastoral ministry or how do you help anyone discern the desire for pastoral ministry. Let me give you three, three headings in thinking about the call to ministry. Three headings. One is scrutinize. Second is sort through. 
And third is some sound advice. That's the three things I want to accomplish today. I want to help you scrutinize this concept of the call to ministry. I'd like to help you sort through it with a biblical paradigm. And then I want to help give just some sound advice uh, that I hope will be helpful. I, I, I trust it's helpful. I've been giving it to seminarians for a lot of years now. So if it's not helpful, I should give them different advice. But I, I want to give you some sound advice to help you kind of prepare for uh, a preaching ministry, for potential eldership, for being a pastor. So those are the three things I want to do. Let's start with scrutinize. Scrutinize the call to ministry. And this is a question, the question, are you called to preach, that has put people in pretzel-like positions. There have been many preachers or aspiring preachers who have been very unclear on this topic, and even seasoned pastors have days where they question their call to preaching. For me, those days are called Mondays. So in this workshop, I I really want at the outset to help you in your discerning your call to preach and thinking of what your role is in the body of Christ as we all want to see a new generation of preachers raised up, of expositors raised up, of missionary preachers sent around the globe. And as I'm, I'm constantly talking to young guys who are aspiring to the ministry, considering pastoral ministry, asking that same question, am I called to ministry? Uh, is this what God's will is for my life? Is this Is this what I should be feeling? Uh, It's a crucial question. It's a good question. There's so much pressure involved in it uh, from maybe a a seminary standpoint because there's one in our parking lot. And so you park your car and you see it and you feel conviction. I should go to seminary. But no, and and maybe maybe you have someone in your life that's encouraged you. You should think about being a pastor. You should think about a preacher. Or, Or reverse, maybe you have someone in your life who says, No, sir, you will not. You will finish your degree at UCLA and you will be an engineer and you will provide for your grandmother or else you will be disowned. So, I mean, I know people that have both of those experiences in this struggle with the question of, am I called to preach? And and what I want to scrutinize at the outset, I think will help you because the way that question is too often answered is marked by two dangers. And I want to scrutinize the dangers. The first one is mysticism, like the word mystery, like mystical, like hmm. And the second word is, there's a horse sound I just made too. The, The second word is presumption, presumption. So I want to talk about mysticism and presumption as we sort through the call to ministry. Already knowing that we did all this work at the beginning saying everybody's called to ministry. And now I'm specifically talking about being called to preach, being called to uh, being a pastor, and, and how that is figured out. And we've all heard stories, haven't we? Exciting stories, Indiana Jones level stories of somebody's call to be a pastor. And sometimes that story, it seems like the more dramatic, the better. The more struggle, the better. The more you know, drama to it, the more villains, the more uh, you know, back and forth. There, there are stories that people tell of their call to ministry that, that could be cinematic. They're so wild. 
And sometimes a lot of that is an internal struggle that they're trying to find. Uh, I read some stories uh, just this weekend of folks called to pastoral ministry. One lady, she said she was called to be a pastor in a dream, a vivid dream that has uh, kept her committed to pastoral ministry in the Methodist church the entirety of her life. So that, that's, that's a quite subjective thing. I, I had a dream. That's how dreams work. It's your dream. You don't really get to share that with anyone else. It's not projected on the wall. It's really hard to argue with uh, when someone says, I had a dream. God told me to do it. I mean, that, that's the kind of mysticism that can attend this thing. Uh, other ways where, where someone will say, you know, the way I ended up in the mission field is I, I slipped on a banana peel, I hit my head on a manhole cover, the manhole cover had the word India on it, and I moved to India, and I've been here ever since. That, that's just, that's a powerful testimony. There's just nothing I can do to argue with that. Um, we, we need to be careful as we guard ourselves from mysticism in this concept of the call to ministry. If you want to be a pastor, the way that you get there is not through primarily a subjective, mystical experience. Uh, the way that Christ appoints pastors, though it is done with divine involvement, authority, power, providence, really isn't ultimately one that is highly subjective or mystical. That distinctive desire to devote yourself to pastoral ministry and to the work of the ministry, to the office of a pastor, to clarify that does not involve scrutinizing your belly button or you know, making sure you have a really robust meal before bed so you can get those good dreams. Uh, it's getting rid, I think getting rid of this unhelpful language of the call to ministry, the call to ministry. It's a phrase that I think is unhelpful and unbiblical. And, and I, I realize that it's a bit of a sacred cow in many circles, so let me just walk through this for a second in trying to scrutinize mysticism and presumption. How do you figure if you are called to preach? How does a person figure that out? What's the biblical paradigm for that? Uh, the idea of this call to ministry is used in the Southern Baptist denomination almost alongside something as sacred as the altar call to them. Many of their pastors have said in public testimonies that they were called to ministry at eight years of age. You know, they responded to an altar call, and then someone told them, son, you're going to be a preacher, and it just turned out they're a preacher. And so they, they've kind of encouraged an environment where you know, even a young child could, could have this this unmistakable call of God in their life. And they get that idea from biblical passages in the Old Testament about prophets. When the prophet Isaiah was, was called to his ministry, remember in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, he said, here I am, Lord, send me. When the young prophet child, prophet-to-be child Samuel is laying in his bed and he thinks Eli's calling him and he keeps rising from his bed and going uh, to uh, his his priest, father figure guy, and, 
And he keeps saying, you know, did you call me? Did you call me? And no, it was the Lord's call in his life. And so they take these narrative stories of a prophetic call, or maybe the most popular one is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, where it says that before you were in your mother's womb, I called you, God says to Jeremiah. And, and Jeremiah was called to a very difficult ministry. He was called directly by God, uh, audibly by God, called before he was even born. And so they take those concepts and they say, well, that's what we're looking for. If you want to be a pastor, you need something dramatic to happen to you, something mysterious, something supernatural. That's how you figure it out. The problem is, is that's not how the New Testament describes the discernment to pursue pastoral ministry. And it's not a normal way that God operates to call people to preach today. I'm not telling you that he can't do unusual things and orchestrate amazing providences in your life that will bring you into pastoral ministry. But I think if you're looking primarily for an experiential sort of lightning bolt, a sign in the heavens, a mysterious encounter... I don't think you're looking the right direction. And so I'll give you a well-known preacher. This is what they said. I did not surrender to the calling of man when I was 18 years old. I surrendered to the calling of God. It never occurs for me for a second not to fulfill it. I'll follow Jesus and Jesus alone all the way home, and I'll see his beautiful face and proclaim, worthy is the Lamb. Well, you can't argue with that. I I surrendered to the call of God, not the call of man. Beth Moore says that was her call to ministry. Well, again, if it's entirely subjective, if it's just between you and God, I don't see how I could even help you. But thankfully, the call to ministry in the New Testament, where pastors actually are mentioned, not prophets, but pastors, the call in the New Testament is one that involves measurables. If you're telling me the reason I want to be a preacher is because God told me so, and there's nothing in my life you could convince me otherwise, I I can't help with the subjective, mystical, experiential side of things. If you blame God for making you do what you do, um, I can just equally wish God would make you stop, potentially. So trying to get this, this language is not trying to remove God from the equation either. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Preaching and Preacher, says a preacher is not a Christian who decides to preach. He does not just decide to do it. It's God who commands preaching. It's God who sends out preachers. I know that sounds like the opposite of what I'm trying to say, but what I'm saying is that I get it, Lloyd-Jones. I get it. There is a divine mandate for preaching. The Bible says, preach the word. Uh, the, the scriptures are clear that, that there's, there is no preachers, Romans 10, unless they're sent. And, and there is a divine kind of sending and the sending of ministers. We just read Ephesians 4. There's an appointment of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers in the founding and establishment and maturity of the church. This is the work of God. I'm not trying to remove God from it, but I'm trying to help you answer or the people that you love answer the question, should I be a preacher? Should I be a preacher? 
Charles Bridges, citing John Newton, said, none but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel. Now, I love that truth because if you are called to be a pastor, it will be the work of God in your soul that brings that to fruition and maturity. But it's dangerously mystical and incredibly presumptuous to start with you, yourself, and you in figuring that out. All right, that's the second thing that I feel like I've, I've quite belabored, but we're making progress. Rather than fumbling around and looking for a kind of secondary spiritual experience where you're trying to hear God tell you you should no longer go to work, you should go to church for work, you should no longer count money at the bank. You should no longer teach sixth graders. I mean, it's no wonder people that teach sixth graders, they probably want to call the ministry every day. Uh, it's hard work. But whatever's driving a person towards that desire to be a pastor, there's things that we need to see in the scriptures that show us how the language of calling actually works. Because the, the mysticism, I think I made that clear, is accompanied by a kind of presumption where now a person says, well, I think I should be a pastor. I, I've had this experience. It tells me so. So somebody should hire me. Somebody should listen to me. Uh, somebody should, you know, I'm going to start a church in my backyard. I mean, this, was, this is the testimony of the last 20 years of church planting. There's lots of self-appointed preachers who just you know, said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I started it. They got a little bit of entrepreneurial flair. They got a little bit of marketing guru. They got an Instagram account. They made themselves a preacher. That's not how it works, and it's presumptive. Now, there is the word call in the New Testament. Kaleo is the Greek word. It's a very common Greek word, 100 times, more than 100 times in the New Testament. And in 99% of its uses, it's not, calling about, it's not talking about the call to ministry. It's talking about the call of salvation or an ordinary use of the voice to call someone to yourself. That's what the word is used in the New Testament. When the Bible talks about pastoral ministry, it doesn't use the word calling. That's a modern phenomenon. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to trade you the question, am I called to ministry, for two questions that are, am I, should I be considered to be an elder because of godliness and spiritual qualifications? And the second question is, am I able to actually teach the Bible, teach God's Word? Those are the two real questions, rather than, am I called? Well, do you have the kind of godliness that God requires of his shepherds that's prescribed in the Bible, which we'll look at in a second? And do you have the kind of ability and understanding uh, involved to be a pastor, which isn't just teaching, but also an ability to work and minister to people? So that's where we're headed with this thing. Uh, if you're looking for a book-length treatment, this is just a pause here, if you're looking for a book-length treatment, uh, there's a, a young man who, wrote, who was in our college ministry uh, who now is a pastor in Washington, D.C. His name is Bobby Jameson, and he wrote an excellent and helpful book that dives even deeper into the same exact topic, and, and it influenced me a lot uh, when I read some, some blogs that he, he wrote many years ago, 15 years ago probably. The, the book is called The Path to Being a Pastor by Bobby Jameson. Uh, let me read to you from it, give you a little selection to kind of 
help you see uh, further what I'm saying in someone else's words. Here's what he says. The expression, I'm called to ministry, asserts something about both God and yourself. You mean that as far as you can tell, God is calling you to pastoral ministry. You think it is his will that you become a pastor. But you are also saying something about yourself. Generally, you're saying that you desire to be a pastor. More than that, you're saying you have a sense that you should be a pastor, as opposed to, say, a gardener or a graphic designer. For those claims to make sense, you must think you are qualified to be a pastor, or at least well on your way. More specifically, he's arguing that that phrase, I'm called to be a pastor, is pregnant with a double presumption that says that you are presuming that you are or soon will be qualified to be an elder, and second, that you're sufficiently gifted in pastoral ministry that a church should pay you to do that. These are the presumptions that Bobby Jameson warns about, and that's what I'm trying to scrutinize with you here today. So it's not that I'm mad that you're using the phrase call to ministry. It's that I want to know what you mean by that. Because it is the Lord who appoints harvest workers, Matthew 9. It is the Lord who gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, Ephesians 4. Uh, I'm not minimizing God's work. Acts 20, verse 28, the Spirit made you. It says to the Ephesian elders, the Spirit made you overseers to send out laborers to the harvest, to preach unless they're, unless they're called of God, uh, Romans 10, uh, Luke 12, he sets over his household faithful and good stewards. Colossians 4.17, the apostle Paul says he received his ministry. I'm good with all those verbs, but that little word call being mystical and presumptive isn't able to carry the freight you need it to carry if you're actually trying to decide in your life, should I be a pastor with the rest of my life? Is that what God wants from me? I'm not minimizing God's involvement. I'm trying to remove mysticism and presumptuousness as far as possible and listen to how Scripture actually talks about how pastors are made. So that's the scrutinized point. Let's move to sort through. Sort through, okay? Questions so far? I think it's okay to do questions so far in a class like this. I was a lot of monologuing. Questions so far? It might help me in my direction. Anything I said that was bothersome, irksome, difficult? Questions so far? Do you have a question? Yeah, what's your question? The stuff about everybody does ministry? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. What's your name? Wesley. Wesley. That's a great question. And I think, to, so his question was for the microphone. Uh, his question was, you hear what you said about ministry. Everybody does ministry. That's a Christian. Everybody's involved in ministry and service. Well, maybe that's where we should all kind of stop. Or somebody hears that and says, okay, I'm good. Then maybe that's what I need to do. And I think that is the starting point. I think that is the starting point that's non-negotiable. So doing ministry, serving the Lord is not optional. Being a healthy, 
active church member is what it means to be a Christian. When you were saved, as Dr. Lawson described for us this morning, when you were born again, everything in your life was reoriented around the cross. And so now you live not for yourself, but you live for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the message of the gospel. And so, yes, that's where we all start rather than that's where we all stop. So now everybody's serving the Lord. Some of you have this nagging desire or you're, you're working with somebody who has this nagging desire that they want to go into ministry or that they're called to be a pastor, whatever the phraseology is. And now I want to help you think about how you figure that out, okay? And I realized this was a long walk for a short drink of water. That, all that was the long walk part. Now we're going to short drink of water, and I promise it'll be very biblical, okay? So let me show you how to sort through this next stage because the world needs pastors. The world needs evangelists, missionaries, men of God called to preach the word of God to the people of God until Jesus comes back. So we can't just go full Quaker route and say, well, we'll all just minister to each other in a circle. That's not how the book of Acts worked. That's not how the early church worked. That's not how the pastoral epistles lay it out. There are such a thing as pastors and elders. So let me show you that just first to to get rid of that idea of, well, we all just kind of vote. We'll all just vote forever. 1 Peter 5. This is such an important passage. 1 Peter 5. Peter is writing to elders in the church, and this is what he says. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and the witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there is such a thing as eldership. There is such a thing as pastoral ministry. And just so you understand that these terms, elder, pastor, uh, overseer, these are synonymous terms. To show that to you, you can look at this passage I just read and see that they're used synonymously. He talks, he addresses the elders in verse 1, and he tells them to be, verse 2, shepherding the flock of God. That's the Greek word poimen. It's where we get the word pastor from. Pastor means shepherd. And so these aren't different functions. These aren't different roles. Uh, I'm sorry, these are different functions. These aren't different roles. These aren't different titles. These are different descriptions of what these men are supposed to do. 
Their elders brought in from the Old Testament concept of those who were the leaders uh, in Israel. They were appointed leadership. They were seasoned leadership. That's why they're called elders. They were also shepherds. So they were pastors. They took care of the flock. Uh, And they were overseers, exercising oversight. That's the word presbyteros. It's where you get the word presbyterian from or presbytery. And so they are ones who watch over. They are shepherds. They are elders. Those three words are used interchangeably when we talk about being a pastor. So if you want to be a pastor, you're saying you want to be an elder. If you want to be an elder, you're saying you want to be involved in pastoral ministry. Now, time out. I do think the Bible makes a distinction between pastors who pastor for a living and pastors who pastor uh, by vocationally. I think that's actually a biblical distinction that's made by those who labor in the Word uh, and they are worthy of double honor. So I think even in Bible times, there were lay elders or what the Presbyterians call ruling elders and there were teaching elders, what we would call uh, professional pastors or vocational pastors, uh, clergymen, whatever, whatever you want to say that. But th- there is no distinction between those. And, and that's what we have at our church. We don't have distinction, but there's an obvious difference between someone who continues to run their printing company and serves as an elder at our church uh, and John MacArthur's job, which is uh, solely devoted to the work of pastoral ministry. And so it's not that one is higher than the other or one is uh, more esteemed or significant. It's one is completely devoted to that work. And so there is, in my mind, and I think in the New Testament, a distinction between lay elders, as I think the words we use at our church, and uh, staff pastors. Uh, Again, those are just titular distinctions, uh, but they do reflect something in the Bible. I'm not going to ask if you have a question at that part because you probably do. All right, let me sort. Let me continue to sort. Uh, We're sorting. So where does it start? You're trying to figure out, should I be an elder? Should I be a pastor? Am I called? I'll give you four words quickly. One, aspiration. Aspiration. It sounds like breathing, but I mean the word aspire. Aspire. Look at 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, 1. The saying is trustworthy. This is Paul writing to protege Timothy. He's supposed to be establishing the church. He wrote uh, three pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And in 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What did we learn in 1 Peter 5? What's an overseer? A presbyteros. What's another word for that? Bishop is, is the same word, but, it's a, but what's another word? Elder. Elder, yeah. What's another word? Pastor. Good. We're, we're on the same page. So those are synonymous terms. So if you want to be in the office of overseer, if you want to be a pastor, if you want to be a, a bishop, if you want to be a, uh, uh, an, an elder, if you aspire to that, you desire a noble task. So... This all begins with aspiration, with a desire. Look, a bunch of people, you come up to me and you say, a bunch of people tell me I should be a pastor. And I said, great, 
do you want to be a pastor? And you say, absolutely not. Okay, well, we figured that out. Let's, let's click into what Wesley talked about. Let's, let's do ministry. Let's use our gifts and, and calling as, as, as we are. Because if you don't have the desire, that's the starting point. Now, I railed against subjectivity. And as you all know, desires are subjective, right? They flux. Like sometimes you want pizza for lunch and sometimes you want pupusas. So you don't know, you know what's coming at you feeling-wise. But figuring that out and starting to discern that desire, Paul wants Timothy, as he trains guys, to know that that desire is not a bad thing when it's a desire for the work that a pastor does. So again, it's not the title, it's the office. And the office speaks of the work. He desires to do it. The Greek word there is a word that means to reach, to grab onto, to move towards, to reaching out, to aspire is to desire. And to remove the presumption and remove the mysticism that so often attends the call to pastoral ministry, you can have a conversation with a person that simply says, is this something that you have an increasing desire to be a part of? Is this something that you've demonstrated this good, noble desire? There's some volition involved in articulation of the will. It's okay for you to say, I'm thinking that I want to be a pastor. And I get that that doesn't sound that spiritual, right? Like it's way more spiritual. I'm like, you know, and I was, and I was there and, and the sky opened and I uh, rumble. And he said, you'll be a pastor, a Methodist pastor. It's a a better story. It's just not biblical. It's biblical to say, I'm aspiring to to be an elder. I want to be a pastor. I want to to be involved in pastoral ministry. And Paul's granting permission for you to say that and know that that can be a good and godly and humble desire. That's what 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, that it's a fine work, a noble work, a good and godly desire. In some societies, pastoral ministry is looked down upon. In some churches, pastoral ministry is looked down upon. And Paul is preventing that by telling us that this is a kind of work that if a young man sets his heart on it, it's something that's a noble task. And that's why it needs to be done in the language of 1 Peter 5, not by lording it over, but willingly or eagerly or with volition, not under constraint. You're a pastor not because you have to be or because God forced your hand. That kind of thinking is not going to sustain long-term faithfulness in pastoral ministry. If it's in your heart, if it's something that you love, something that you desire, something that you long to be of service to your master, you long to minister to his people, you long to lead by example, to wash feet, to care for sheep, to tend to lambs, that's the language and starting point that can lead and does lead to long-term ministry rather than to self-appointment, mystical, no objectivity, God told me to do this. Instead, this is a starting point that's heartfelt, humble, thoughtful, internal compulsion that points us towards the work. And the scripture says that's a good thing. So that's the first word, aspiration. The second word is assessment. 
So if to aspire is that internal desire and motivation, the external begins with assessment. And now that's assessment on at least two levels. Assessment by the candidate, by the person that desires, the one that desires to be a pastor. And then, so that's an appropriate level of self-assessment. But a person can still self-assess and be deceived, right? I mean, that's why people go on American Idol, right? I mean, they genuinely believe they're a good singer. Their mama lied to them, whatever. That, that's, that's a problem because it's only self-assessment. That's why you need the panel of judges to, to send you away. Self-assessment could be wrong. Uh, you could be self-deceived. And that's why an overseer is part of uh, a plural group of people. That's what 1 Timothy 3, an overseer, again, one of the synonymous words to speak of a pastor, a shepherd, an elder. That's why it goes on to provide the overseers with an assessment grid, which is 1 Timothy 3, and repeated for us in the book of Titus that tells us, so you want to be a pastor, here's what a pastor must be. Verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil, and then on to deacon qualifications, which are uh, likewise. You can find the same list of qualifications in the book of Titus, chapter 2, but this is the assessment that follows the aspiration. We're all sinners. This is a high standard being put before us, a standard that if there's besmirching on your character, it can keep you from the office of a pastor. This respectable, prudent, temperate, hospitable, peaceable, managerial kind of assessment is so crucial for the candidate to be a pastor to work through, and he needs to work through that with the other believers in his life and especially with the elders in his church. You see, pastors make other pastors. Pastors help assess your call to ministry. So if you want to be a pastor, go find some pastors and hang around them. And they're going to help you understand what it means to be a pastor. But here's the thing when it comes to assessment. Character is first. It's not giftedness. So if somebody told you, man, you're such a good talker, you should be a pastor because you're, you're glib or you're funny or you're, you're effective or you won the Toastmaster competition or you're in Future Problem Solvers of America or whatever. And they saw that you're, you're a talking person. They say, you should be a preacher because you're, you know, you're engaging or, or whatever. That, that's not where the assessment begins. It's not great giftedness that seems to be the predominant thought of the assessment of 1 Timothy 3, is it? It's great godliness that seems to be the emphasis of the biblical text for assessing a prospective pastor. God wants his servants, 
More than he wants them to be gifted, he wants them to be godly. To even use the assessment of 1 Timothy 3, rather than the things we often go to, which is, well, can the dude talk? Or how's his doctrine? Like, is he bovink? If he's not bovink, he's out. I'm not saying that giftedness doesn't matter. I'm certainly not saying doctrine and theology doesn't matter. But those, both of those things can be instructed and must be instructed. These other things are the predominant and overwhelming, overwhelming emphasis of the Apostle Paul who's appointing pastors for the church as it grows all over the ancient world. He cares that these men are godly because God requires holiness. And without holiness, you won't see the Lord. And so God requires those who call people to holiness be holy themselves. That's first and foremost. Now, are Christians supposed to be holy? Yes. The ones that minister in our churches, the ones who are members of our churches. And so it's not about this is a standard that's alien to the rest of the church, but this is a standard that is set before the church and embodied by the man of God to a certain degree that he's not disqualified because of some obvious stain on his character. You know, he's a, he's a great pastor, but he just, you know, his eye kind of wanders towards the ladies. Urch! No, he's not a great pastor. That, that, he doesn't, that doesn't count. He's a great pastor, but he has a violent temper, and he's given to fits of rage when he curses out the choir. He's not a great pastor. That's not, I mean, it's easy to forgive some deficiencies in communication if the man is a genuine man of God. And so that's the emphasis of the assessment is to look not at this guy's ability to talk or to lead or entrepreneurial spirit or to have creative ministry ideas or to manage his social media well, but instead he's a man who fears, loves, and serves Christ. Colossians 3, 2 We do our work not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And this applies to all of us, doesn't it? Verse 23 following says, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive your inheritance as your award, as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. If you're going to be a pastor who shepherds God's people faithfully, the spiritual qualification of external examination isn't about tips and tricks for ministry. It isn't about deep-seated leadership gifts. It's about following Jesus faithfully because that's the man who will faithfully lead the church. A plague on our churches is unqualified shepherds who have an appearance of godliness but not the real thing. They may be doctrinally awesome, but their holiness is terrible. And that thin veneer is a hypocrisy that will eventually snap and who he really is will be exposed. So, 
Timothy, 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to skip this part. Okay, let's do the third word. Aspiration. And then we did assessment. And the third word is ability. This is all under the, the sorting through this. Ability. Now, the man is a saint. He's godly. He loves Jesus. He's not perfect, but he's blameless. In other words, there's no short accounts that he's keeping. Uh, It's not that a pastor has never sinned against anyone. It's that the pastor is repentant. The pastor is transparent. The pastor is growing in growth and maturity. He is blameless in the sense of there's no accusations that can be leveled against this man in these categories that would disqualify him. So he's a godly man. But there are abilities necessary for pastoral ministry. And it, not, it might not be the ones that you think. In our megachurch age, we can all see the benefit of administrative giftedness, of entrepreneurial spirit. And so many church planters lean into those abilities. And I'm not saying those abilities are disqualifying at all. It's just that those aren't the abilities as we're trying to uh, assess people and and sort through what this is required with aspiration and then assessment, the third thing we really need to think about is ability. And there's two abilities that the Apostle Paul puts in front of Timothy. Everything on the list has to do with character, with spiritual maturity, with rooting out hypocrisy, making sure the men are godly men who hold the faith, uh, in verse 9, with a clear conscience. But there are two glaring abilities on this list, two things that you must be able to do if you want to be a pastor, an elder, a, a minister, or whatever language you're using, an overseer. Two abilities that are found at the end of verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, saying he must be an overseer that's, that's above reproach and looking at the most close relationship of his marriage and then speaking of issues pertaining to self-control, his standing in the community, his wisdom or prudency. The two abilities that are driven into focus are the two words on this list hospitality and ability to teach. Both of those are things the pastor must be able to do. Now, the part that's shocking to you on that list is that I put hospitality as an ability. Most people think of it as a characteristic, but me and John Calvin think otherwise. And it's because it is an ability. The practical outworking of these two abilities on this list are the twin skills a pastor must have if he'll be effective as a shepherd of God's people. He's unsuitable to be a pastor if he's not able to do these two things, to be hospitable and able to teach, to able to practice hospitality and to be able to teach. Let's do hospitality first and briefly. And that's one that I think you probably think of as a feminine characteristic because maybe you did time with Martha Stewart or whatever. But uh, we usually think of, of hospitality as, you know, Chip and Jojo making things nice. Like they put, you know, a vase right here. Ooh, hospitable. Um, that's not what the biblical concept of hospitality is. It's not things looking nice. It's not, you know, a perfectly stone-fired pizza. The food analogies come out more and more as we get closer to lunch. Um, but we think of hospitality, you know, the red carpet, bringing people in. What a lovely home you have. Uh, that's not biblical hospitality. The biblical New Testament conception of hospitality has to do with your posture towards others strangers and believers. 
New Testament hospitality is probably, if you're going to boil it all down, Mark Zagavich wrote a whole thesis on this. If you want to read it, you can ask him for it. He loves email. Send him an email. Uh, If you want to boil down hospitality, this, this posture of welcome towards other believers and towards strangers, but especially focused on the the, the people of God, and even people that you do not know very well. I think that kind of the most modern way to describe that is that you need to be a people person. That's what hospitality is. That's why when pastors say stupid and awful stuff like ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people, ha, 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 ha. I mean, we get that because sheep can be toothsome sometimes, but... That's not the fundamental attitude that pastors need to have towards people. It's the opposite of a heart of a shepherd. There's no ministry apart from people. If you don't love people, please don't be a pastor. Or are you a meticulous theologian? Are you as sharp doctrinally as the teeth of a wolf? Well, you'll make a wretched pastor. You'd be great on Twitter or Facebook. You should lean into that ministry. But you shouldn't be a pastor. Just air out your pugnaciousness on Twitter. Because if you have gray and deep discernment, but you don't have a love for people, the gentleness that's required of a shepherd, the hospitable posture to be with people, to spend time with people, you will do so much spiritual harm to them. Loving, serving, caring for people, washing his disciples' feet, Jesus' humility and love for his disciples and their manifold imperfections are one of the things that make him such a great shepherd, such an exemplary chief shepherd. And that's why this attribute of hospitality is so important because you have this posture or tendency to welcome people in, to spend time with people. You're, You're a natural discipler. I'm not saying that a pastor has to be an extrovert. That's not a biblical word. I'm saying that pastor Pastors have to be not necessarily bubbly. Uh, they don't have to have an ability to, you know, I mean, pastors do have to have an introverted nature because they need their bottom in the chair. They need time in the study. They need to be with God in communion. But pastors need to have more than a tolerance for people. They need to have patience with people, a concern for people, an openness towards people, a warmth for people, or they will be wretched shepherds. They have to be able to speak the truth boldly, and they have to be able to speak the truth in love. Pastors should be kind. I know it's crazy, right? They should be nice, and then they should have an ability to teach. Now, this looks differently in so many manifestations, and I think you see that in Sundays at July. There's lots of different people teaching, lay people and pastors teaching and people teaching, and you can go on the internet and get good Bible teaching from all kinds of people. You heard Lawson this morning. He teaches like a chainsaw. You hear ringing a full-bore chainsaw. You hear MacArthur and his, his patient exposition. Uh, I mean, there's just so many different kind of personalities, and when we think about teaching, we usually think we gravitate like the Corinthians, like I am of... Paul Washer, I am of Apollo, so I am of Christ. Uh, and we have this kind of sectarian approach, but that's not ultimately what the, the requirement of being a teacher is about. It's, it's not about style. It's about an ability to teach 
a didactic kind of concept behind that New Testament root word, which is the idea of conveying information, of furthering understanding, of teaching. Modern words like pedagogy would help us understand of what that means to be able to teach. It doesn't mean that you could just blather on forever. It means that you can actually help people grasp God's word. You can convey sound doctrine. You can pass that on to others. You can influence them with information and with truth. And that's the the measurable ability of teaching that's so crucial to lead the church of God. That's why not every elder is a preacher, in the the sense of preacher, Uh, but an elder is able to teach. And maybe his teaching looks like sitting down at a coffee shop and confronting a, a wayward, adulterous husband and calling him back to his marriage by showing him what the Word of God says about his sin. And that man repents and turns from his sin and reunites with his family. I would say that that elder, though maybe he's not a big, sweaty, yelling preacher, He's an excellent teacher, right? That's teaching. It's not just a public speaking ability. It's an assessment of giftedness to shepherd and lead and train and instruct and equipped in truth. It's about fruitfulness in teaching. Do people respond to this person's teaching? Are people to understand your your thoughts as you put them together? It doesn't need to be stylistically amazing, That's never the requisite of a pastor in the New Testament. Instead, the content is clear. The doctrine is right. The theology is sorted. It's appropriate. It's helpful. It's truthful. That's how you assess teaching. And too often when we think about ability to teach, we think about ability to show or ability to, you know, put it on an Instagram reel. That's not what teaching is ultimately about. Excellent teaching looks like transformed lives that sit under that teaching. It's a conveyance of information that has an impact on someone else. That is why the requirement is able to teach. It's not about being a master of Greek grammar. That will happen as you go to seminary and and you teach the Bible. It's not about being able to defend the faith against every weird cult you've never heard of. You will grow in theological precision. You will be able to communicate in a way that's appropriate and helpful. But sometimes it's a classroom. Sometimes it's a coffee shop. Sometimes it's a pulpit. It's that you're about teaching people about Jesus. You're about helping others walk with Jesus. Pastors make more pastors. So if you're struggling with these things and you say, I don't know if I can preach. I don't know if I can teach. I don't know if I'm hospitable. You need to spend time with the pastors of this church in the fellowship group. Uh, whenever you can get to be in time with pastors, take, take classes that they teach, whatever. Get to know them and let them get to know you to help you ascertain what it is that you're about. Uh, Dabney says it this way, ability to edify and aptness to teach is not enough. There must be talents to complete the pastoral character. Sound judgment and solid experience must instruct, instruct you. Gentle manners and loving affections must sway you. Firmness and courage must be manifest and tenderness and sympathy must not be lacking. Gifts administrative and ruling well will be requisite. It gives instruction and in teaching well, fitted to lead, prepared to endure, able to preserve, persevere in grace. You should be head and shoulders above the rest of the people to their father and counselor. Read carefully the qualifications of a bishop given in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. 
if such gifts and graces be not in you, in a bound as a pastor, you will be of no account. So I'm not trying to be reductionistic and saying it's just these two things. I'm saying these two things are the abilities that are, are marked out. And from those abilities will be a warm regard for the souls of men, a care for men and women and children, and a desire to see them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Okay, so I think I made it through most of my stuff there. Um, I was going to give some advice for improving as a preacher, but I don't think it's the, isn't it's the spot for that. So to wrap this all up, let me just try to do sound advice for preparing for ministry. And we'll start here and move there, okay? So we start here. If it's groundbreaking stuff for you to hear, everybody should be doing ministry, good. Now read the New Testament and you'll see it everywhere. There's these words, one another's. It's hundreds of them in the New Testament, or more than a hundred of them. There is so much that you can do for the people of Grace Community Church with the gifts and abilities and resources and time that you have. Use those gifts for the service of the other people in this church. You will be of great benefit to all of us and will be a benefit to you. We need you to be active at this church, involved at this church. If God has put something on your heart that you want to do, you have a special desire to help with this sort of thing, let that desire be known and, and do it. There's no, you don't have to fill out 55 forms uh, if you want to be involved in ministry here. If you're a member of our church, just one simple form, uh, if you're a member of our church, you need to be using your gifts for ministry. Now, if you're somewhere in that aspiration and assessment uh, deal, some sound advice to prepare for ministry is, is I hope you're being discipled by a pastor. Get discipled by a pastor. Find somebody who's been in pastoral ministry uh, for more than five minutes and, and have them disciple you. Have them teach you. Go through the qualifications together. Uh, and the other thing I would say is if you have a desire to teach, then do it. And you say, well, I'm not allowed to because they don't, when I go to the back, Warren only gives you the microphone and not me. Well, there's lots of places you can teach. You can teach the children that live in your house. Teach them the Bible. You can, you can get a group of people at your work and, and start a Bible study at lunch. I mean, that kind of teaching is the best sort of training to discern if you should be a preacher, if you should be called to pastoral ministry, however you want to say it. There's a whole lost world out there, and there's a no-ho train station. Watch your back, but preach the gospel. Maybe bring a friend. And that's a great spot for you to work on, on preaching, on proclaiming the gospel, and of holding out the word of truth. So I just don't want there to be anything in your mind that's an obstacle for you to kick the tires on pastoral ministry. It's a good desire, and it's something you should consider. Another way, and here's where I, I start a commercial, for you to think through this, take a seminary class. Take a class. Chris Buczynski, the man of beard, right there in the back. Look at him. He's waving his hand. He's the admissions counselor at the seminary, and he is greedy to get seminarians into the seminary. But you don't have to be like a full-blown you know, preacher guy to go to seminary. It's okay to get your beak wet. Get your beak wet. Try it before you buy it. 
maybe you need to just take some seminary classes and explore this a little bit. That's a great way to do it. And it's not just because I get 25 cents every time somebody signs up for a seminary class. It's that I don't. It's that genuinely, I think that's a great way to kind of say, "Hmm, I'm going to be around some guys who are like moving towards ministry. Because here's, here's, the, here's the hard facts. I do a talk like this to our freshman pastoral ministry students. And I start the talk saying, how many of you are called to ministry? These are people who left Wisconsin and packed their moving van and used to be able to fish for trout. And now the trout have three heads in the LA River. So they, they came here on purpose to be trained for pastoral ministry. And I asked them, how many of you are called to pastoral ministry? And they all go, whoosh, whoosh. they raise both hands. And then I do this talk and say, why do you think you're a pastor? Why are you being presumptive? Why are you being mystical? Blah, blah, blah. This is what the Bible says. So you're saying you should be an elder. You're saying you should be an elder now. You're saying that the church should buy your contract out and pay you right now. And then at the end, I say, how many of you are called to ministry? And the one guy from the Philippines is like, because he didn't understand what I was saying. (laughs) So, and I'm like, mabuhai. And then I explain it. And he's like, oh, okay, not, not me. So, so I'm not trying to, when I do that talk and when I do this talk, I'm not trying to make an obstacle for you. I'm trying to show a path for you of this is how you explore the, the work of, of being a pastor. And I think it starts, just as a, our brother with a good question asked earlier, is it just starts with you using your gifts right now, right here. And there's lots of other ways. Disciple by a pastor. Try to do a little teaching. Evangelization. Uh, take a seminary class. Uh, learn about pastoral ministry. Read good books about pastoral ministry. MacArthur has a pastoral ministry library. Uh, it's like three volumes. You could read through that. All of that would be really helpful in just helping you clarify that desire. But, but more than anything else, let's just conclude this thinking, how grateful are we that God continues to raise up ministers, to raise up pastors that are such a benefit to our souls. I mean, I'm just so grateful that I have a pastor. I love MacArthur, grateful for his friendship, but more than anything else, I'm grateful that I have a faithful pastor that teaches me the Word of God week after week. I look at the elders in the prayer room this morning, and at 8.30, they get down on their knees, and they pray for all the people of this church. And it still stuns me every time that they love these people, that they do this not out of compulsion, not out of gain, but because they care about the flock of God. What a wonderful thing to have in our lives, to know that God has continued to, to raise guys up. Every fall and spring, we get a new crop of seminarians, snot nose, tape on their glasses. They show up here, they get a ratty apartment in New Hall, and they're all in it. And, and you are so kind to welcome them into serving high school ministry and into your fellowship groups. And, and that we, 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 when we, we, we all have warts and, and, and problems. And, and this church does so well in loving prospective pastors and serving them and giving them their old broken fridge and in all the ways that we serve seminarians. So I just think there's so much evidence of grace that we can be thankful for as God raises up ministers, even among us, and especially at this church where we have that privilege of having seminarians uh, trying to figure that out. You know, they're, they're, a lot of them are in the same place some of you are saying, I wonder if I should be a pastor. And so they're pursuing this theological education to help clarify that. And I think a lot of us can help along the way. So that's my talk. 
Um, I, I think we've spent enough time. I'll be up here if you have questions. Chris is back there if questions about seminary. He knows how you'd actually take a seminary class. I told you you could, so he, he's got to find a way now. Um, and I, I think that's the talk. I hope that was helpful and clarifying. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for uh, your good grace that provides ministers and pastors and elders to care for the souls of your people. Uh, We're grateful for uh, the flock, the church that we're a part of, and we're grateful for the shepherds that you appoint. And we pray for them, that you would strengthen them, that you would make them more like your son, and that as we uh, sit under their teaching and submit our lives to the word of God, that you would see fit to grow all of us into stability and into fullness and maturity as we seek to be like Jesus. We long for your return, O Lord, and we know that someday you will come through the sky and the trumpet will blow and we will once and for all be part of that great and final congregation. And there will be only one shepherd, the chief shepherd, the glorious pastor of our souls, Jesus Christ, who made a way for us uh, through Calvary to be with him forever and to unite us with the Father. So thank you, God, for the salvation that you have given full and free at the cross. And thank you for raising up those ministers who will proclaim that until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.